Hey, it's NPR's Book of the Day. I'm Andrew Limbaugh. Do you like book clubs? I'm just asking. Something tells me that if you're listening to this, you might be a book club type person. Well, if you are, the folks over at NPR Politics have a regular book club series where they pick a book and talk about it in their Facebook group and, you know, do an interview with the author. We wanted to play you a recent installment, and don't worry, like any decent book club, it's okay if you haven't read it. It's an interview with journalist Sasha Eisenberg about his book, The Engagement, which traces the history of marriage equality in the U.S. And he tells NPR's Danielle Kurtzleben about the internal struggle among LGBT people to even agree that marriage equality was a fight worth having. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Doubleday, publishers of Lessons in Chemistry. Be inspired. Read Lessons in Chemistry, the number one global bestseller with more than 6 million copies sold. Meet Elizabeth Zott, a 60s-era scientist who brings her smarts and unapologetic worldview to a TV cooking show that has the power to change lives. Lessons in Chemistry is available wherever books are sold from Doubleday. Hey there, it is the NPR Politics Podcast. I'm Danielle Kurtzleben. I cover demographics and culture. And today we are doing another installment of our book club series. And we're talking about a book that's about both demographics and culture. Sasha Eisenberg's The Engagement is an exhaustive, deep, really kind of monumental look at the long road to marriage equality in the United States. From its early beginnings in places like Hawaii and Massachusetts to the landmark 2015 Supreme Court ruling that made same-sex marriage legal across the country. As with all of our book club picks, we have read this book along with you, and we have discussed it in our podcast Facebook group. And today, I have the privilege of posing your questions, and mine, to Sasha Eisenberg. He's a journalist who has written for an array of publications. It's a list too long to get into. And he's also written three prior books, including 2012's The Victory Lab, about modern political campaigns. Sasha, welcome. Thanks, Danielle. I'm really glad to be here. Yes. Well, we have a lot to get into. So let's start with a very basic question. Why was this book important to write to you? Was the goal just to capture, lay out the history of same-sex marriage, or was it something bigger? I came to realize as I was working on it that this was, in a certain way, a kind of history of the American culture wars over the last generation, basically over my lifetime. You know, I'm, I'm 41 years old. I started working on this 10 years ago. Um, and it was at the point when we were starting to talk about this as the defining civil rights movement of my generation. And I realized I'd been alive through the whole life of this as an issue. Um, and I did not understand how it had emerged and in many ways eclipsed not only other concerns to the LGBT community, but lots of other points of sort of conflict or tension with, within our politics and, and, and came in many ways to dominate American social policy debates um, for much of my adult life. Also gets at just how even while people were fighting for marriage equality, many of them were kind of, they were in the same boat, but rowing in different directions is maybe a way of putting it. What are some good examples in your mind of exactly how strategy got so messy during the same-sex marriage debate? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, one thing that, that I think we as political journalists do terribly um, and are often unaware, I think, of how terribly we do it is write about conflicts within movements. So, you know, you'll you'll read or hear stories that say the labor movement is doing X or evangelicals are doing Y. And anybody who has spent any mm-hmm. time talking to labor leaders or 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 
evangelical clergy will realize that they spend much more time often bickering among themselves than they do necessarily thinking about how to work in a unified way. And, and, and as I dug into this history, that really became clear. So, you know, what we would call the gay rights movement or the LGBT community, that's a very big coalition. And mm-hmm. there are a whole lot of both different constituencies, you know, gay men and lesbians who are invested in, in marriage, bisexual, transgender people who often could marry the people that they that they loved, regardless of what state law was about marriage. And within the LGBT community, there are a lot of different policy concerns. You know, you go back to the 1990s when this debate emerged and there were people whose you know, top priority was was desegregating, you know, military and government service so so openly gay people could serve or who wanted just basic non-discrimination protections, um, uh, writing sexual orientation into hate crimes laws. And one of the sort of remarkable parts of the story is not just how ultimately gay marriage campaigners triumphed over opponents of same-sex marriage, but how within their own LGBT community and political movement, they raised the issue of marriage so that it went higher and higher on the uh, list of priorities. And frankly, a lot of that was driven by money. I told the story of a, a circle of very wealthy donors led by Tim Gill, who had been a uh, a software pioneer. He started the company Quark, the desktop publishing company. And he mm-hmm. uh, sells his company um, just before the NASDAQ crash in 1999, ends up on, you know, with a, um, a massive pile of cash and decides that, you know, um, a lot of his philanthropy is going to be about gay rights. And marriage is the issue that resonates most with him more than employment discrimination, more than this, you know, hate crimes question, whatever it may be. And, he ends up bringing together a circle of, of like-minded donors, almost all of whom are, are, are men who have either made their money through uh, founding companies or through inheritance who are very concerned about marriage. I think in part because very wealthy people spend a lot of time worrying about uh, estate planning, and they build a, an infrastructure that is focused on marriage above and maybe at the expense of some of these other priorities and help bring together some of the leading lawyers and strategists in the movement. And I, I, I write about a, a meeting that they had in, in, in Jersey City, New Jersey in the spring of 2005, right. when a lot of gay rights activists saw their movement, saw this cause at a low point. Um, and they set out a path to get a winning case before the Supreme Court within 20 years. And what that did was it forced other established gay rights groups like the Human Rights Campaign or the National Gay and Lesbian Task Force to adjust their priorities because they realized that the major money within their community cared about marriage. And if they weren't doing marriage work, they were going to lose out on some of that funding. I want to switch to another uh, institution. Let's talk about the Supreme Court, which, of course, is a huge part of this book. This book really gets at the complex relationship between the Supreme Court and public opinion. And I was hoping you could talk more about that, because this is a thing that I'm always curious about. Is is it something justices pay attention to, and how does it affect them? We have a tough time figuring out what justices pay attention to, because they're often not in real-time public about their thoughts. Sure. But all the folks who are working on this issue operated from the assumption that the justices were not operating in some sort of you know, vacuum, purposeful or or, or inadvertent, um, in which they were oblivious to what was going on in the world around them. What they sort of assumed was that the court would be willing to take bold stands for civil rights, as it has in its history, but that they did not want to be seen as 
working from a minority position, hmm. that, that the court wanted to be in a position where they were happy sort of reigning in outlier states as they did when they struck down school segregation, for example, or those interracial marriage bans, but they did not want to be in a position where they were seen imposing policy on a majority of the country on a sensitive issue. Why is it that the court is worried about public opinion if they're nominally ruling on constitutionality? Why should it matter that Anthony Kennedy sees a headline about a Gallup poll over his cornflakes? Why should that affect him? I mean, so... The, the, the question of should um, is, is one. I mean, why does it is because, you know, sure. as people have said, the court gets its legitimacy from from the other branches of government, from state and local governments and thus from the public. And so, um, you know, whatever the joke was that the Supreme Court doesn't have any have any armies. Well, you know, they have no ability to enforce uh, their decisions with anything other than uh both the public and governments that will go along and accept them. And so, you know, one of the things I, I certainly expected um, after the Supreme Court ruled in 2015 that there would be more examples of local resistance um, in, in conservative states, mostly in the South and the rural West, where I thought there would be, you know, county clerks, county executives, governors, state attorneys general who said, we will not enforce this order. And ultimately, almost all of them sort of drop their opposition pretty quickly. And I think that is a sign of a legitimacy that the court has earned over years by not taking decisions that public opinion and local politicians would not be willing to sustain. Uh, another big question I, I think a lot of us have continually had is how exactly did opinion on same-sex marriage change? Because it has swung so decisively towards marriage equality during our lifetimes. Yeah, this is one of the things that sort of drew me into this mystery 10 years ago was I was having a lot of conversations with pollsters who who would tell me they had not seen opinion on a single issue move uh, as quickly as it moved on on marriage. And, at, you know, at that point, attitudes were moving four or five percentage points a year only in one direction. Mm-hmm. Those people now, in part, I think because of pop culture and general cultural acceptance, feel more comfortable coming out than they did a generation ago. But people are realizing that they know people who are gay and social scientists call this contact theory, the idea that we become more sympathetic or friendly to, to um, the concerns of people once we've we've had personal contact with them. And it becomes a lot easier to be open, I think, to the arguments for same-sex marriage and more resistant to the arguments that were made against it when you know somebody in your life who is gay or lesbian and see, you know, the fundamental humanity of them. And in a certain way, the fundamental modesty of the demand to for them to share their life with somebody they love. Mm-hmm. Well, I could ask you more hours and hours worth of questions, but we're going to have to leave it here. Sasha, thank you so much for joining us. This has been great. I really enjoyed it. This message comes from NPR sponsor FX, presenting Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill, FX's Clipped, now streaming only on Hulu. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Online. Is your child asking questions on their homework you don't feel equipped to answer? IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. 
One subscription gets you everything. One site for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And NPR listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com NPR. This is my voice. I can tell you a lot about me. And I'm not changing it for anyone. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of NPR episodes centered on Black experiences. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. 